So we've all been part of organizations that have the policies, they have the training, they've done countless studies on sexual harassment and abuse, and still the problem persists. The same men that would be abusing beneficiaries are likely to be abusing staff. They couldn't be fired, they couldn't be investigated, mm -hmm. the, the victims were blamed. And, and if the person making the decision is asking you to have sex with them or is abusing you, where do you go to report? Welcome to Women on the Line, a National Women's Current Affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wondery Country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Aoife Cook. This week's show looks at sexual and gender-based violence in international development and humanitarian organisations. This episode is hosted by Joanne Sandler and Shauna Wakefield for a podcast made with Gender at Work a Canada-based international feminist organization that works on gender equality. So Shauna, here we are doing this podcast <laughs> on sexual harassment, exploitation and abuse, which has been a long time coming. And we had a lot of back and forth about why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place. It's a personal issue for many people that have been in uh, humanitarian development organizations, particularly feminists, that hits home. And we have many tools, much knowledge about how to prevent uh, violence against women and girls, about how to prevent harassment and sexual exploitation that haven't been listened to and haven't been practiced consistently. So we wanted to do this podcast to give some voice to feminists who have worked in organizations who have been on the ground in humanitarian responses for many, many years, decades for some of us, to be able to look at what are the realities? What is it like to be someone who is supporting women on the ground um, in the face of violence that they have experienced or are trying to support others through? And to look at what, is the, what are the cultures that underpin this kind of exploitation, harassment, violence? And what can we do about it? There's many uh, women and men who are now coming up with creative solutions. Are they being heard? Are the ones on the ground being heard that are um, especially women of color uh, working in the countries where so much of this abuse is happening? I think we're all starting to question, you know, we've had gender advisors and women's rights officers and women's protection officers for so many years now, but especially the gender advisors. And they've been compromised at some level, right? Because they've been told, you know, do gender mainstreaming in programs, right? But yep. as far as the internal culture goes, that's been a taboo area. So in this podcast, you're going to hear from Hendrika Okondo, who uh, has more than 20 years of experience in humanitarian contexts with the UN organizations and with the YWCA. She's worked in so many countries, Sudan, Somalia, Eritrea, Congo, many others. 
She's currently an independent consultant working on sexual and reproductive rights with young women throughout Africa and worldwide. You're going to hear from Robin Yeager, who worked for many years for the International Rescue Committee. She also worked in Sudan, northern Uganda, Iraq, and Haiti on humanitarian and emergency relief. And you're also going to hear from Sarah Douglas, who is the Deputy Chief of Peace and Security at UN Women. Sarah has been working on women, peace, and security for 15 years and worked for four years on the ground in Sudan. They are three women who have different perspectives, but really complementary perspectives. So we started by asking all three if there's a difference in the way that sexual harassment and abuse play out in humanitarian and emergency settings and how it manifests in development organizations in general. And you're going to hear first from Sarah Douglas. I definitely don't see it as different because I think they're all linked to the same root causes of inequality and abuse of authority and differences in power. They are very different context to context, but whenever you have a population that is so vulnerable and cut off from their support network, when you have a breakdown of rule of law, when you don't have a functioning security service, all of these factors enable predatory behavior from all, all sides of the spectrum, including from the national or international. Next, you'll hear from Hendrika, who is going to reflect on her work with the World Food Program and the ways that emergency situations create particular vulnerabilities for women as staff and also as beneficiaries. You're really in a very macho culture, where as women, even the, the infrastructure is not friendly to women. You know, there's, there's no bathroom, there's no um, facilities, and you are expected to just cope. And this, for a long time, was very, very difficult for women in that sector. And then you add the nuances of the power relations in that most of the bosses in the humanitarian um, programs will be men, and they will be the ones doing your appraisal. And because they, they will not look at the specific needs of women. So that was one of the things that we did as gender advisors in World Food Program, is to actually say that the working environment was not suitable for women. And, uh, and I think I have to credit um, Catherine Bertini, who was the executive director at that time. But there was also the whole issue of the relationship with the communities that we were working with. So we had a situation where you'd have a lot of male staff, mainly from the logistics sector, which is very macho culture, mm -hmm. and you're in a community where you have young women who are poor, who are desperate. And so quite often, as gender advisors, we were not just mainstreaming gender into the program, but we were also dealing with a lot of issues of sexual abuse where you would see young girls coming out of tents and, you know, they would say, oh, but they're consenting. And we would try to explain that they, there's no way that a young girl in a, a, let's say, a drought or famine or conflict country would actually have the power to consent to someone who's a logistics officer in the World Food Programme. It's a power relation. So you, you have men who have power to hire and fire and who have decisions that they can make for huge amounts of money. 
Women on the Line. All three of the women quickly move to the issue of the deep and often invisible structures that foster and protect inequitable power relations and abuse. And not surprisingly, colonialism and racism intersect with gender inequality and they create a toxic environment. One way that this manifests is that there are huge power differentials between national and international staff. Both Hendrika and Robin talked about that. In some ways, I think we would, you could see it come down harder on local staff. Like if something had really come up, like if you really found out that someone who was distributing food was exploiting women, but it was, you know, like a day laborer. And then it was just like, oh, okay, well, you're out. But if the manager had gone through something and then you find out, oh, well, they just hired him at Mercy Corps next door. Or the thing about people getting switched out, that there is somehow the management there becomes a little bit. And I, and I think it's exploitation is happening at all different levels. Mm-hmm. When you are in a humanitarian context, mm. there's the geopolitical that plays, you know. And we had the case of, of the American man in World Food Program. They couldn't be fired. They couldn't be investigated. Mm-hmm. The, the victims were blamed. The same men that would be abusing beneficiaries are likely to be abusing staff. And, and of course, you have the nuances where you have the national staff. And and national staff are in a context of conflict where the only employer is the UN. And it's a life and death issue. And and if the person making the decision is asking you to have sex with them or is abusing you, where do you go to report? So we've all been part of organizations that have the policies, they have the training, they've done countless studies on sexual harassment and abuse, and still the problem persists. Um, We asked both Hendrika and Sarah, why? Why why is this so immutable? Um, And Hendrika talks about what happened in the context of the zero tolerance policy at the World Food Program. Sarah talks about the problem of impunity. The challenge was that it was not implemented Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's a lot of... um, can we say camaraderie, you know, friendship, and people who are connected to the power structure within the UN. Mm -hmm. So whenever somebody would be found to have breached the zero tolerance policy, they would just be transferred Mm -hmm. to another another country. And the, the reason was that these were special skills, or that's what they claimed, that these people had special skills. And so they they were more valuable to the UN than to the community. And so although the zero tolerance policy was there, and we did make a lot of reports, and and I have to still congratulate Catherine Battini. She did actually sack a number of people on mm-hmm. whom the reports were done. Mm-hmm. And senior, you know, um, country directors and senior logistics officers. Mm-hmm. But once she left those gains were all rolled back. There was a complete backlash. Partly was because of the way she had implemented the commitments to women. Because in her case, it was a top-down approach. She meant well. 
but it wasn't integrated within the system. And uh, she had a, a deputy, I think she was also an American woman called Judith, and they would go into a country and any report would be sacked on the spot. Hands <laughs> <laughs> were literally rolling. But as soon as she left and a man came, the, the, of course, the, the male club got together and it was all we had been penalized by these mm. wicked women and we were not bad and it was excessive and so all those gains were lost. In places where you don't have impunity for certain crimes, they often tend to not happen as much. I mean, that's the underlying theory of change behind having a rule of law sector and for having police and other security actors. We have policies and norms in the UN system that have not been enforced. So as long as they're not enforced, they're just words on a paper. So then there's the question of what happens to gender advisors and feminists who are witnesses to these experiences or knowledgeable about the abuse that takes place. It takes a huge emotional toil for many of them. Hendrika reflects on that and the relationships between women, including women who are in leadership positions, seen as powerful externally, both in humanitarian organizations and development, where most of the power is held by men. It was very traumatic, really. I mean, as a gender advisor, knowing what the norms were, and I was doing the training, and, you know, after I would do the training, staff would come up to me and tell me what had happened to them. And I would report to the country director, um, and who and, and also to the regional director. I, I had a super uh, boss who was a Canadian woman called Marion Reed. But the, what was traumatizing is that we were labeled the lesbian women because we were in gender. And then two, and, and, and because main of the, mainly the abusers, in my case, were mostly African men, I then got asked why I was trying to destroy the career of African men. And we had this surreal fight at the UN country <laughs> team meeting. meeting, which was on rape. So we were both African women. We are heads of agencies. And I'm saying that we need to include SGBV. UNFPA is like, no, rape is un-African. It doesn't happen in the African community. I'm like, what? You know, so they picked you. And I could see where she was coming from because she felt the men were uncomfortable because I was bringing a subject that they didn't want. And, and I went to her and said, I understand where you're coming from. This is uncomfortable. But everything is uncomfortable. I work with girls who've been raped. So for me, it's emotional, it's raw. And I don't care what these men think. You're listening to Women on the Line. This week, we're speaking to Hendrika Okondo, Sarah Douglas, and Robin Yacker. And they're interviewed by Joanne Sandler and Shauna Wakefield from the Gender at Work podcast. And you'll hear from them next. So, you know, Shauna, what comes out crystal clear is that what we talk about at Gender at Work, the deep structures that hold gender inequality in place, are so determinant in why and how sexual harassment continues with impunity and how these organizations, our organizations, which 
you know, are supposed to be standing up for social justice and human rights become microcosms of the same kind of patriarchy, racism, and colonialism that exist in the world. Um, this is especially true, as all of them pointed out, in relation to the international-national staff divide. And it becomes a fertile ground for sexual harassment and abuse. Um, I was really taken by the way Robin spoke about the use of power in the aid industry as a whole. First, the entire aid industry, so to speak, is an exercise in power in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But the issue of sexual exploitation and abuse is not, as we know, specific to the aid industry. And it is deeply embedded in power and gender structures that are also deeply personal, that relate to each person as an individual in how they understand their power, how they understand their privilege, how they use their power, how they use their privilege, and then is embedded within a system that is also built on these gender power dynamics. And so it seems to me automatic that the focus would be on, or should be, on the organizational culture or on the what people are doing as human beings when they come to that space every day and what kind of environment is being promoted seems to me to be a fundamental starting mm-hmm. point. But I think it's that's totally not happening, no. really, at all. So some of the deep structures that, Joanne, you were referring to and which Robin articulated that are holding gender inequality in place are the absence of accountability and reflection, especially in organizations which have huge power inequalities, and among those that have the most power. So Robin, who worked with the feminist organization Raising Voices in Uganda, she focused on primary prevention, and she was able to articulate these issues, um, rightly, the lack of reflection on power, privilege, and intersectional discrimination that are really baked right into the system. And this is notable in part because organizational culture is uh, front and center in the feminist values that Raising Voices and organizations are really fostering. I think the most powerful thing that you could get out of working for a feminist organization is the deeper understanding that the work that you do in aid actually starts with yourself. We show up as a whole person, and that whole person comes with all sorts of power and privilege and other dynamics to navigate. And that navigation is not something that just gets learned, that that's a part of who we are Mm -hmm. and how we operate in the world, Mm -hmm. and is something that can actually fundamentally alter the way that we engage with people and what happens. And in fact, I think some of the language in the aid industry, while it's very well intended, still also is a little bit impersonal. Like the do no harm language. It's kind of like this principle that is really important, but I don't know that it really brings the work back to yourself. It still kind of creates this dynamic in which there are these other people out there and you're this person who's like coming to do something great for them. Mm -hmm. And so like, be careful that you don't mess that up, but it's still kind of supporting that dynamic. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I am this person who's coming to help like those other poor people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever been asked to reflect on my race, certainly not in the humanitarian system. The, The conversations that I'm 
able and I think are important to have about race that happen here. In the international system, I think there is this idea that race and racism is this thing that Americans grapple with that other people don't. And maybe colonialism, but I, you know, I've never been asked to even think about that in the humanitarian system. Um, the system is inherently like racist and colonialist. So for feminists working in the kinds of development organizations that we've worked in, Shauna, we've long recognized that organizational culture has got to be a a focus of the work, changing it, interrogating it, challenging patriarchal culture. And I think it's fair to say that one of the key strategies for feminists everywhere has been to advocate for more women in leadership positions with the implicit assumption that if we have more women in leadership positions, that things like sexual harassment, abuse, and exploitation will change. And at the same time, I think what we're seeing is that we do have more women in leadership positions in many of these organizations, and we're not so sure that the culture is changing or that those abuses of rights are being interrogated, made visible, and punished um, enough. So we asked Hendrika if, in her experience, having more women in leadership positions will make a critical difference. No, it won't make a difference because I think in Unifem we talked about the critical mass. So having one woman in in charge of an agency, but still having most of the decision makers being male, because at, at Unifem sitting in that campus, we got a lot of people of the young women in the other agencies coming to tell us about the sexual harassment they were going through. And for us, as human rights advocates and activists, the difficulty of it is how were these people actually getting recruited in the UN? So you you are advocating for human rights but abusing human rights. Patriarchy, you know, in Kenya where I come from, we say patriarchy like corruption fights back. You know, as soon as you try to disrupt it. And it's, it's, it's really unfair for these women. The gender frameworks are robust, and there is an interrogation of, of looking at what, what are the men's needs, what are the young uh, boys' needs, what are the women's needs, what are the girls' needs. So it doesn't matter how many policies you have, how many projects you have, unless you do the deep layers of addressing patriarchy, you can't change. Our conversation turned to whether there are any effective strategies emerging, any hopeful signs of what can be done. This is where we're all hungry for the conversation to go. There's a lot of demand on that front now. And we recognize the need for stronger policies, better investigations, greater awareness, and an end to impunity. But none of these are new. What's crucial is to dig deeply into the culture, into how we treat each other, and root out the inherent intersectional norms that enable sexual harassment and abuse to thrive. Nobody can deal with all of the organizational, bureaucratic, and political challenges that we have in the organization. You know, they're very, very profound, and it's beyond the capacity of, and the remit of even the Secretary General to be able to address all of them. But using the policies and frameworks that exist, there would definitely be space to 
take some examples and actually follow them through the entire process and make it very visible as a warning to other perpetrators that there are accountability mechanisms that can work and will work. And I think that kind of example would really be very powerful. You know, and, and again, that's the whole rationale between having any justice system. I mean, the work with perpetrators reached a point where we said jailing was not the solution. There has to be some sort of retraining and redefining masculinity mm-hmm. because it was really a power relations. Uh, so how do you redefine masculinity? I've had discussions with uh, people that work on SGBV and saying, okay, these men are wounded. They probably grew up in a cycle of violence. And, you know, the work that we do with Tear Fund around the Thursdays in Black campaign is saying, okay, they, it is the masculinity, the macho culture that is toxic, mm-hmm. and it demeans also the men. Mm-hmm. But then is it our responsibility to counsel and train those men or to address the victim? You know, that's one. The other is the women we're talking about who are standing up are women who can afford to stand up. They are still women within the system who cannot speak up. And I've seen the discussion on the humanitarian network, for example. There was a young woman on the network that raised the fact that she'd been sexually harassed. And what was uh, strange was that the very women on this network are accusing this young woman of exaggerating. And they are claiming that this man that she accused is very nice and they don't think he can do that. But these are women that are in the system who are employed and who are looking. And you could see even the, the type of women that were saying this were women who, who know they need another con- contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not, and they may have privilege, but when you strip down the fact that patriarchy excludes them as women, you know, and that's why women in politics can't change things, because they they are allowed, the the men allow them into that club, but if they try to raise things which make them uncomfortable, they'll be kicked out. You've been listening to Hendrika Okondo, Sarah Douglas, and Robin Yacker, interviewed by Joanne Sandler and Shauna Wakefield. Thanks to Gender at Work for sharing their podcast episode, Sexual Misconduct in Humanitarian Organizations. And thanks also to Frida Worden of the Women's International News Gathering Service. Find out more about this series at genderatworkpodcast.org. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program made for community radio. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation.